Here's what DC is talking about. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. 55 years ago today, Dr. King's assassination triggered uprisings across the nation, and D.C. was no exception. Washington, Chicago, Detroit, Boston, New York, these are just a few of the cities in which the Negro anguish over Dr. King's murder, presumably by a white man, expressed itself in violent destruction. The resulting agony tore the city apart for days. More than 900 businesses were damaged, including half of the city's liquor stores. Nearly 700 homes were destroyed, most because they were above or next to stores. And police arrested 7,600 people on riot-related charges. Looting spread to the downtown shopping section of the city, and as darkness fell, arrests increased. To this hour, more than 700 people have been arrested, some of them picked up in spot checks by police enforcing the curfew. What's even more striking is to hear about that part of D.C.'s history through the words of its residents, how they process the grief and anger for a fallen icon. And to do that, we're dedicating two episodes to those voices. Today, we're chatting with Van Newkirk, the host of the Atlantic's podcast, Holy Week, about what King's death and the ensuing uprising meant for Chocolate City citizens. Today is Tuesday, April 4th. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is CityCast DC. Van Newkirk, thank you so much for being here. So there is so much to talk about with the 1968 protests, but I really want to start with one segment of the show that really stuck with me. And it's the section that happens in episode six, where students from the Cardozo area, some as young as six years old, are asked to write poems and draw pictures and write essays about what they saw during the protests. You know, I think one of their teachers says something like, they might be able to depict it more thoughtfully because it was happening like on their streets, in their neighborhoods. There's a group of teachers in this school district who make up an innovation team. And it's their hope that somehow all of this can be turned into a learning experience for the youngsters. So as a first step, they ask the kids to draw and to write about what they did and what they saw during those days of devastation. What are some of the pieces that struck you from that bit? When we came across the actual artwork, there's a book of it, of the Cardozo kids' drawings. I tried to convey just how moving and emotional the, the, the pictures were. It's always just striking to remember and just emotional to remember these were children, r- really children. A lot of them were drawing pictures of bodies. A lot of them were drawing, you know, the flames that were down the street from their own homes. They were r- trying their best to capture an emotion that I still find is just too difficult to capture as one person. There was one uh, student who drew a picture of the G.C. Murphy store burning on 14th. And it was just, you could see in the store that the student drew, you could see there were um, two bodies, two young boys, one of whom was never identified. And that's the, the Bed Bath & Beyond now on 14th and Park, I guess. Yeah, that's, well, I guess we'll see how long it's a Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that whole complex with the Target, and the gym and the Bed Bath & Beyond, that, that used to be a store that was in this Black neighborhood. 
So MLK was killed in Memphis, and we know these resulting protests and anger spilled out all over the country. But you've got three episodes that are dedicated to D.C. specifically. Why is that? Well, first and foremost, kind of personally, I've been in D.C. for most of my adult life. And I've always known, ever since I was coming here uh, in the 90s with my dad, when there were still buildings that had not been rebuilt, that 1968, the uprisings, the unrest, the riots, they played a really big role in the formation of, of D.C. as we know it. And so I thought it was a really good way to show how that moment affected America. Yeah, I I know in some of the archival footage that you included in the show, you hear newscasters on national broadcast saying things like, the riots are spreading just blocks from the White House. In late afternoon, the smoke of racial vandalism drifted across the White House itself, and President Johnson declared a state of emergency. That declaration resulted in the virtually unthinkable act of armed, regular army troops deployed to protect the Capitol and the White House. It really encaptures what you're saying, that it's both something that's happening in this this place that is your home, D.C., but also as this symbol of the larger change that the country was going through. Yeah, I just think the image of you've got the White House with giant, machine guns posted above the front gate in case somebody came through the front gate in April 68. Just that image itself is something that we should meditate on as they are, you know, ostensibly trying to deal with the problem. And we've got a really good scene where one of the people we talk to is working at the hospital in D.C. and is looking down and everything from the roof. And he says it's supposed to be the capital of the free world. Um, and it is a place where essentially all of America's contradictions are laid bare. We're supposed to be in 68, you know, a place where you can vote, where our civil rights are guaranteed, where all the gains of the movement are supposed to have, you know, been won. Black folks are supposed to be overcoming. And you still have incredibly concentrated poverty in D.C. You've got to say that still, even though a lot of people didn't uh, see it, still has heavy segregation in schools. You've got a city where Black folks still could not even vote on their own leadership. And that just lays every single contradiction bare. So you spoke to so many folks who remember this time in D.C. How do they describe D.C. before 1968? I spoke to a lot of Black folks, especially a lot of Black folks from Northeast. And I think what what I got from them is this reconstruction of what, what I call old Black D.C., which is, you know, one or two generations into the Great Migration, a lot of people whose families had come up from the South and had really built something that they hadn't been able to build before. You've got a lot of really fond recollections of H Street, of just how thriving a business center it was. A lot of people talked about U Street. A lot of people, even who weren't like in those corridors or doing business there, just talking about D.C. being a place that felt smaller, that felt like a a town where people knew each other. One of the things that didn't get into the show, actually, was just one guy who was from the South came up and he says he could tell where everybody was from on each block because he would walk by their houses on Sunday and smell what was coming from the kitchen. He could smell if it was a, a, a Chitlin's house. He could smell if it was a Grit's house. And so <laughs> he would know. It tells you a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. A lot of that, a lot of people just, you know, sort of 
really their parents, and this is always, you know, their parents, just had sort of basically escaped the teeth of Jim Crow and were able to buy homes. They were able to build at least a modicum of wealth through civil service, which is just a thing, a career path for Black Americans in 68 that was just not available anywhere else. So they were having this new experience. But I think um, for all of them, even that, once you really dig into it, was still somewhat limited compared to how any other citizen might live in America. Yeah, that really comes through in the um, segment with Roland, I think it is, where he's talking about riding his bike through D.C. and how small it felt. You know, it's a small city here in 2023, but much smaller then, and how it was such a big deal that his parents owned their home and everybody else in their family rented. And they had these kind of kind of cushy jobs, right? And and maybe not cushy, but they, they worked jobs that made them that you understood as jobs that commanded respect. And what that meant for, for his life in D.C., I think that really comes through in, in the bits that include his story. Yeah, I thought Roland, you know, it's always good to have somebody who, you know, Roland is a professor. I don't know if you can hear it, but, you know, always good <laughs> can, to have somebody who, who's teaching this. But, yeah, I think his story was so instrumental here because he's somebody, he was in Northeast and they moved over to Northwest for a bit. And... He was the story personified. He's actually, he was a, a fourth generation Washingtonian in 68, which was somewhat unusual for us. His family had been able to get a home and, and they had this real mobility in a way that was the dream for folks coming to D.C. So that was a big deal. Yeah, it's a perspective I'm glad you included. And you, you point this out so nicely in that episode where, you know, D.C. is in some ways, like a Southern city where you have Black folks who have jobs and have pensions, Black doctors. And so it's kind of easy to think that some of the horrors of the Jim Crow South, D.C. doesn't really have those in a kind of way. And that in 1968, people are sort of forced to reckon with that dream that maybe they have of D.C. as this Black utopia kind of being shattered. Yeah, I think, uh, and I'm glad we were able to do this kind of through the eyes of people who were children at the time. Because I was able to get a perspective on how their own vision of themselves in the city changed as they got older, as they were able to see more of sort of the boundaries of what was possible for them. So even with all that stuff, even with all um, the relative increases in mobility compared to, say, if you lived, I'm from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and I had a lot of folks from Eastern North Carolina who moved up, especially in the 60s. and so I always used to, you know, we always used to talk about our cousins up north and think about D.C. up north, um, <laughs> our cousins up north who had made it. But even if you do that comparison between there and the country back home, things look a little better economically, obviously. They look, you know, you're able to buy homes. A lot of people are building businesses. If you compare it to the average across, say, white America, it's still much more intense levels of, of poverty. You've still got a large industrial sort of contained poverty within the ghettos. You've still got a pretty deeply stratified and segregated city. There's still white folks in, in D.C., and they do not live with black folks in D.C. at that time. And also the main issue that really was on the menu was home rule. And so you had people who had been organizing for home rule for a while and it really kicks into gear sort of 
in the movement. And it's like, okay, we got all these people coming here for all these marches and, you know, we're, we're, we're doing the thing. And how do you give a march? And John Lewis gives a speech at the March on Washington, ostensibly about Jim Crow South, about how we're fighting for the right to vote. This is, you know, two years before the Voting Rights Act. And it's kind of like, okay, yeah, Mississippi can't vote. We got we to gotta organize for that. But people in D.C. can't vote either. So, yeah, you, I think a lot of the limits become clearer. Time as sort of we the country processes what all these big policies and shifts mean, but also as the people I talk to get older. So on April 4th, 1968, we know MLK is killed. And a lot of the historical coverage around what happened in D.C. really focuses on that corner of 14th and U and the U Street corridor where the protests really kicked off. But as you mentioned in the series, you know, these feelings of grief and resentment were really happening nearly in every neighborhood in D.C. What are some of the scenes that you've listened to or read about in making this show happening elsewhere in D.C., not just in the 14th Street, U Street area? Yeah. So we talked to a lot of folks from from all over. And so we talked to people who were on 8th Street, which is another of the early sort of focuses of people who came out early. We talked to people over. Actually, one of my favorite stories is is we talked to a, a woman, Vanessa Lawson Dixon, whose family was kind of split between 8th Street and the East Capitol Projects. A story right by her that I'm just still sort of just fascinated by right outside the East Capitol Projects, right on the border. So right on the border going out towards Maryland. There were people who were throwing rocks and bricks outside of a a liquor store and were told by the PG County police that if they crossed the state line, they would be shot. Wow. I mean, it really goes to show like, how I think D.C. is such an interesting place where it the borders, it's such a small place and, you know, it's Virginia on one side and Maryland on the other. And yeah, you have these feelings of grief and resentment and unrest really pushing up against these borders again of D.C. and Maryland. Yeah, I thought that was one thing we were really keen on showing. Basically, everybody now likes to think about, use a phrase DMV often. I don't, but a lot of people do. And one of the reasons I don't is because I think it's, you know, especially in this time period, the boundaries are real and they mattered. And a lot of people out in the suburbs in Maryland and Virginia didn't like what was happening in, in D.C. And, you know, they, they they didn't want all these people coming over and uh, these certain people coming over into their neighborhoods. And now, obviously, the story is different because now people are being pushed out into the, those neighborhoods. I will say it's always interesting to me that pretty much all the interviews we did of people who used to live in Northeast, most of them now live in Prince George's County. That makes a lot of sense. You know, in this series, something that you return to a few times is Howard University and the role that it played during this time. Did folks tell you about Howard University kind of as a a hub of organizing and resistance and sort of figuring out what to do next and processing how folks were feeling at the time? Oh, yeah. I mean, I got a lot of love for Howard, period. I kind of grew up in Moreland Spring Arm Library. And so uh, any excuse to return there, I take. But I did think in this case, it was a very important part of this story. I think Howard is an important part of the story of Black D.C. And the fact that you had in the middle of the place that is, you know, the symbolic heart of what's happening in 68, 
You've got the federal response happening here. You've got the largest and first sort of domino in the uprisings. And you have this massive institution that is so symbolically important to Black America in the middle of it, right down the street from the epicenter of what's happening. That's important. And also at Howard, they had just finished a, a series of protests on campus that if April 68 hadn't happened, would have been, you know, the biggest news in D.C. at the time. Students took over campus. They were radical. They were shouting Black power. They wanted the school to implement an Afrocentric curriculum. They were opposing the Vietnam War. And this was a major deal, and it actually mattered. The students said that Howard was not responsive and sort of involved enough in the surrounding Black community. So all that happens literally a month before King is killed. And so I think there's an important moment, if we zoom out a little bit from April 4th, about Howard's role in the transformation of D.C., so you mentioned the federal response, you know, thousands of troops were called into the city for these protests. The mayor asked for federal assistance with all the fires, and it ended up being the largest troop deployment in the U.S. since the Civil War. What did folks in D.C. tell you that they felt about that militarization happening in their city? I talked to a lot of people who just still, you know, a lot of people sort of compared it to an alien invasion. You know, it's it's... You have a lot of cities where the National Guard is called in, a lot of places where the military is active. But I think D.C. has like sort of the most, I would say, iconic response of them. They have units from the 82nd Airborne, which is one of the units that became most famous for fighting in Vietnam and not incidentally was one of the most integrated units (laughs) that has been sent over. They had... Members of the 82nd Airborne, this famous division, marching on the streets, going and controlling areas of the city as if it were the occupation people were watching on TV. That left a mark for a lot of people, I think. This idea that, again, in this place where you don't even, you can't even vote for the leadership, you don't really have a say. And the moment you come out, and D.C. had not had significant rioting before in the 60s, So the moment they do come out in anger, they see essentially the extent to which pacification will happen. I mean, that that brings me to another question that I just have to ask, like, in your opinion, how did this time in 1968 influence D.C. long term, specifically in terms of D.C. as being, I guess, what we used to refer to as a chocolate city? I don't know if that still necessarily (laughs) holds today, but how do you think it impacted the city's identity long term? Yeah, it was no doubt. It, it, it was maybe the, the major lever that changed the city's identity. You know, D.C. starts being called Chocolate City, at least outside the city, in the 70s. It's sort of a result of this ongoing white flight from the city, which is really accelerated by 68. You see a lot of the remaining capital that was in the city, the remaining business owners, a lot of the, the white folks who were still uh, maintaining residences, a lot of them leave. You have real energy that goes into in the city after that that uh, establishes home rule and the, you know, sort of first class of leadership after Mayor Washington under home rule is all those people who are organizing. So the first black leadership in the city after Washington is is basically all these old SNCC organizers, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who had moved to the city, who decided to become involved and 
to who saw DC sort of as an experiment in black power. So obviously the famous member of that crew is Marion Barry, but also we talked to Frank Smith, who was involved in the Adams Morgan neighborhood for a long time and who ended up on the, the council. We talked to Tony Gittins, who wasn't a card-carrying member of SNCC himself, but who worked alongside them a lot and uh, who worked with several councils and mayors and was on the um, D.C. Council for Humanities. And you saw, really, this uh, group of Black people in the city try to carry the spirit of self-determination forward. And that's kind of what we know as a modern era of politics in D.C., you know, you mentioned that you don't really call the D.C. area the DMV. And I wanted to ask another question sort of about language. You know, people in a lot of the archival footage, people use the word riots, protests. I think uprising is the words that like we use, say, in 2023. What are your thoughts on the language that people used associated with this time in D.C.? Yeah, so at least in my reporting, I try to be mostly true to what people told me who were on the streets contemporaneously. And pretty much all of them use the word riot. Um, I think it's just sort of a common understanding for what they were doing and why. And I think it sort of fits, it's a descriptive thing. It's people, masses of people on the streets who aren't particularly sort of politically, at least individually, moved by uh, politics and don't have as, you know, sort of organized aim. I know now there is, and even, you know, some people at the time uh, referred to them as uprisings of rebellions. And I think it is right to call them uprisings of rebellions when we look at them in the macro. When we talk about sort of them as an entire phenomenon across the country. Because they are, we know that they are responses um, to oppression. They are things that are triggered and prompted by the wide-scale um, levels of poverty, of inequality, of especially police brutality that are being imposed on Black neighborhoods. Just for me, when I'm talking about an individual thing and somebody going out, I try to mirror what they are saying. Most people understood what they were in as being riots. So for folks who are listening to this episode and maybe have checked out Holy Week, where would you recommend that they turn if they want to learn more? So the source book for me that really does it is it's difficult to find. And I'm, I've been trying, I've been talking to some people, some, some libraries, hoping they can find a couple copies. Maybe, just maybe we can get momentum to get this book back in print. But it's called Tim Blocks from the White House. And it's by Ben Gilbert, who is an editor and reporter for The Washington Post. And it was written actually in 68. So basically like the the gold standard of contemporaneous reporting on specifically what happened in D.C. For more national stuff and stuff that follows the arc of the cities we were looking at, I would also recommend Clay Risen's A Nation on Fire and Peter Levy's The Great Uprising. And for Memphis in particular, Michael Honey has a book called Going Down Jericho Road, which is fantastic. That's really cool. I'll have to keep an eye out for those. And last thing, we like to include a DC life hack in every episode. So Holy Week is really beautifully rounded out with these archival sounds and like, you know, newscasts and just really stunning audio footage that you've been able to pull. Was a lot of a lot of this was like publicly available from DC libraries and the DC History Center, is that right? 
Yeah. So we got a lot of shout out to libraries. You know, it, <laughs> libraries, we we basically scoured the record. So we went to MLK. We went to the D.C. to, to the History Center. We went to Library of Congress. Lots of public radio archives. Let's see. A lot of stuff beyond that. But our sort of first points where we dug in were all these public resources. And I think you'd be surprised how much you can. I learned a whole lot just sitting down and listening to all those. Van Newkirk, thank you so much for being here. The show is Holy Week. It is stunning. I cannot recommend it enough. Listen to Holy Week. Thank you. And before you go, some quick news. Thanks to a new law that took effect last week, many cannabis stores in D.C. will finally be able to get medical marijuana dispensary licenses. For years now, they've been operating in a legal gray area where they gifted cannabis, along with the purchase of a $100 sticker or trinket. The new law will make it easier for Washingtonians to legally buy and sell cannabis products. Meanwhile, surprise, surprise, the DMV is the fourth most expensive area in the country to live in. The search site apartmentlist.com just released a report that says the overall cost of living here is 53% higher than the national average. That's factoring in groceries, healthcare, transportation, and more. The housing component is the most egregious, though, 144% higher than the national average. Yikes. Finally, you might have noticed it was slow going on the red line yesterday. That's because Metro suspended service for more than three hours after transit officials say an unauthorized person with no signs of life was found on the tracks. The Washington Metro Rail Safety Commission is investigating the incident. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? And also have them subscribe to our newsletter, Hey DC. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Talk to you then. 